You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 5 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to the cloud of unknowing. And I'm here with Jim, and in today's episode, we're going to be addressing questions that have come in from people listening to the podcast. Welcome, Jim. Uh, Yes, thank you. Good morning. Yes. Good. Well, we received a lot of amazing questions and reflections and uh, notes of gratitude, so Thank you, everyone, who made the effort to send something in. And, Jim, you were going to start with just some general reflections about what, what you read. Yes. In reading, I, re- I read through all of these a couple times, actually. And um, first of all, I was very uh, encouraged by it because these are path questions. That is, they're, they're the kinds of questions or the kinds of things that people say who are on this path. And uh, and also, I noticed this how we respond here because there were so many comments and questions. This will be a representative sample mm-hmm. of some of the main categories. So some had to do with practice itself, things that come up in the practice, practice questions. Others had to do where it opens up feelings of trauma or feelings of things. There's also a concern about what about other mystical traditions other than the Christian traditions. And also questions about different ways this relates to our life, daily life, and so on, and, and so on. So we'll be moving through these categories, singling out questions that are representative of that, and maybe some other things besides. But uh, overall, very uh, heartwarming questions, the responses of kind of the sincerity of the engagement it was lovely. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And Jim, just a little recap on the cloud, because there's uh, all, all the questions we've chosen for this episode relate to the cloud of unknowing and people right. who are trying it out or, you know, asking questions about it. So uh, just a little recap that the cloud is a, is a little different. This mystic offers a method, uh, a method of practice, but the emphasis, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I hear from you in your teaching, the emphasis is not on the method. It's on the experience of God that the directee is longing for and yeah. how to support that longing. Yes, that, that when, when, when each of these mystic teachers that we're doing, notice that the, all of them up till now, there's no method. Mm. Tom, there's no, Thomas Merton doesn't give a method, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, and so on. And... Um, among those mystics, what they're really looking for is how your devotional prayer and sincerity in prayer, on what point it starts to become mystical. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to call it a method, it's how to discern that's happening and how to cooperate with it. In Guigo, there is a method. But notice the method doesn't start out as contemplation. It starts out as the foundations in which contemplation occurs. So the lexio, the meditation, and the prayer. And then in that method, uh, the contemplation is as unit of stay beyond method. Because it's mystical, it's divine. So what you have in the cloud of unknowing is right from the beginning, it's a method. 
But notice, it's like goigo. It's not a method you just decide to practice. It's a response in the in the prologue to a, a taste of mystical love, a blind stirring of love in the hidden depths of your being. So the method is a way to concretize the intention to stabilize in that mystical state. So it's a method in that sense. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar to, uh, say, artists who have to learn the principles of art, art school. But those principles are methods in service of the gift of art, mm. which is beyond. Same with poets. You know, there's the discipline of poetry, but it's a discipline in the service of what transcends method. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and we're going to see also a, a very similar method to, to this when we do the way of a pilgrim, the Jesus prayer mm -hmm. is a method. But it's the same kind of method. It's a way to get beyond the closed horizon of conceptual thought and finite feelings into this mystical state. So th that's the tone of it, I think. That's my understanding. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jim. I, I think that's really helpful to ground us as we reflect on these questions together. So thank you for that. I want to begin with a question from Tamsin, and she says, I love turning to the mystics, and, and I'm so grateful to be able to keep listening. I noticed that you're using he, him pronouns when you refer to the author of the cloud. Given that they are anonymous, would it be possible that you please use she, her pronouns sometimes? I personally have preferred to see her as a female, given that we don't know. Yes. You know, when I'm uh, giving the talks and speaking of God, mm -hmm. I always try to go back and forth, mm -hmm. like she, he, so, and so on. And uh, sometimes maybe I should share some reflections on that, on God and gender, and so on. And... Um, so I, where I'm at is the first thing, of course, is we don't know. Mm -hmm. So whoever the author is, he or she was very careful, chose not to tell us. There's no indication we don't know. I personally use he because for me what it is is this. When I, when I sit and study and read, say, St. John of the Cross, uh, Thomas Merton, we go later, we're going to do Meister Eckhart and read the, the, the male the men mystics. And compared to what it's like to sit with Teresa of Avila in the interior castle, what it's going to be like to sit with Julianne of Norwich, we're going to do her next. Mictel de Magberg, one of the Beguines. There's like a feminine, uh, Mirabai Starn talked about this too. There's like a feminine voice. You know? And so the voice of the author of the cloud feels more masculine to me mm. in my tone, just by sitting with these two. But if you, because we don't know, mm -hmm. Um, and you prefer to think of the author of the cloud as she, think of the author of the cloud as she, mm -hmm. you know. And um, uh, it raises interesting questions about it's out of our gender, it's the union with God that transcends gender. Yeah. See? But I transcend gender as a man. A woman transcends gender as a woman. But not to leave their gender behind, but the mystical dimensions of being a woman, of being a man. So anyway, but that's why I do that. That's my own proclivity I just yeah that's why I you say he yeah. yeah thank you for sharing that Jim so now some questions about the cloud so one from Mark Dean he says do you think the four levels of the active and spiritual lives there's two each of those two active levels two spiritual levels 
correspond to the four stages of spiritual development, common, special, singular, perfect? I, I do think so. Um, see, I think what these, these levels are all about is that, is that the, this, this mystical awakening stirs and meets us and awakens us where we are. And so in the, low, the lowest level of the act, not lowest in the sense of less, but in the beginnings of the active life, likewise in the beginnings with the common life, the stirrings start within the stirrings of our day-by-day -day awareness of ourself and devotional sincerity. But then what happens is that the active life, that is actively, the active life is achieving union with God through effort. It starts to become more and more passive, as in more and more yielding to God acting in us. And we have to actively choose to assume the stance that stays open to that, which then moves into the lower level of the, of the mystical, of the spiritual, and finally into the highest level. So I think it's a certain way. It's very personal and it moves back and forth, but it just gives us an overall feeling or an understanding that can help us to realize where we are. Because mm -hmm. that's what matters. God's always one with us where we are mm -hmm. working. And the, the real goal here is not to have certain kinds of mystical experiences, but holiness. It's really surrendering ourselves over to the love of God and living in fidelity to that and then letting it grow as it grows. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's a good insight. I do think they're related. Mm -hmm. And, and then if you're feeling stuck, this person is saying they're feeling stuck at a particular level, how, how would you advise uh, them? Um, we're going to have to say, talk with this person, get a clearer understanding, but this would be a thought. Let's say a person, is they get a taste of the mystical, they read the cloud, mm -hmm. but they can just tell they're kind of stuck in the act of, that is, they experience it in achieving it, what they achieve it through fidelity to their own effort or to their thoughts or to their insights, to their inspirations, to the what the author of the cloud calls the gifts of God, rather than God, naked, alone as God is in himself. So what I, I my thought would be this to consider this, is that if one is uh, desiring the mystical, and one realizes one is still very much caught up in thought and reflection and so on, to really trust God in the transformation that's happening to you in that active way of life. And knowing that God's oneness within you is you accepting yourself as you are, because God does. Mm -hmm. And then and the more we accept ourselves where we are, the more we can start to see the mystical dimensions of the active life through that acceptance. Ever notice when you're in the presence of someone who says they'll love you under conditions that you measure up to who they want you to be, it shuts us down. Mm -hmm. When we're with someone who accepts us just as we are, it opens us up to change. And uh, so I'd answer that way. It's like being at peace and like the humility, the path of humility, of being like graciously grateful for being in the act of life and the mystery of it, God's oneness with us. So, and if you look real, real close, you can see the intimations of the depth dimension of that. And it's the subtlety of moving and, and sensitivity to that is how we, it becomes more inclusive or more overtly mystical, I think. That feels very encouraging. <clears throat> very encouraging. Thank you.
a question from Patty. When I sit in meditation, I begin by offering my heart to God. I imagine being drenched in God's loving presence. I use different phrases at first, be still and know I am God, or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, your servant is listening, or I belong to you, something of that nature. But during my meditation, instead of using a word to ground me, I simply sit in the awareness of God's presence. When my mind wanders, I come back to that awareness. My question is, is this okay? I don't want to be in my head thinking about being aware. Hopefully that makes sense. Many thanks for the wisdom and for all you do. No, exactly. That's just what the cloud is teaching, really. In other words, um, we, we start with the word that anchors us in the intention of passing beyond thought into this union with love beyond thought. And so every time thought arises, we keep returning to the word, we return to the word. But as we start to settle into it, we start to settle into this oneness with God in love. And the word falls away as need is not needed. That's why I like that image. Oh, we got to we're talking about vultures earlier, brothers. <laughs> uh, you see these birds like out of, over the ocean too, the seagulls. You see it mm-hmm. where they ride the thermals. Mm-hmm. You know they just fly. And then every so often, as they lose a little altitude, they flap their wings a few times. See? So you're sitting in this presence, and you realize there's distractions. And so you say, Jesus, 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 or like you flap your wings a few times to maintain altitude. But you're really trying to use the word to get beyond all words. And um, and I think it, it comes full circle. We use the word to get beyond words to discover the holiness of words, you know, how God's present in the way we talk to each other and, and so forth. So I, I think that's, that's exactly what the cloud is suggesting mm-hmm. really happens to us. Okay, next I have a question from Sue. I tried for years to use silent or meditative prayer, finally giving up when my lack of progress would create such feelings of distress it was counterproductive. I am venturing carefully into this world again. I find myself drawn to it on the one level but anxious on the other. I wonder if you can help me by reframing some of what you say. You talk about noticing a thought as it arises, encouraging us to have no judgment of it and not dwelling on it or working it through, just letting it be. That all makes sense. But I find that I do not even notice that a thought has arisen until what feels like quite a time later when I come back and I'm aware I have followed the thought without even being aware that I was doing so. (laughs) And so I have missed the chance to notice the thought arise and now I beat myself up that I can't even do that bit. Please don't tell me I don't need to. I am trying to tell myself that without much success. What I am hoping is that there might be a way you could help me find something kind I could say to myself when I come back to being present, find a way of it being okay, that I lost the path so easily without even noticing I had started to stray. The way you so kindly treat us as listeners, learners, and encourage us at whatever stage we are at makes me think there, that there is a way of talking to myself which allows for me being someone who can barely hang on to being present for a few seconds, let alone a few minutes. Hoping you can help. Yeah, several things to consider, I think. 
would be to how does this, how would this person understand how would you understand what it is about being in a kind of a wordless space beyond thought that causes anxiety and sometimes it has to do with with the fear of being unguarded mm. that if you're not vigilant so is there a trauma history or an abandonment history can i be safe and surrendered over and vulnerable at the same time because as soon as i uh, enter into this space this unguarded space anxiety arises so first would be learning where that comes from and maybe working with the part of the self that gets triggered like that you know that it's true that you weren't safe when that happened you know but it's like the adult you and god's grace talking to the part that gets anxious but i i'm i'm here for you see i'm here for you and I'm, and god's here for you. god's here with us and so on another thing to consider is uh, noticing when a thought arises and then she realizes sometimes if she doesn't notice the thought arising till later she knows that it arises. I think we're all like this. You know, sometimes I try this once. I used to do this. I used to try to lie awake at night falling asleep. And I used to try to watch myself fall asleep. Mm-hmm. See, So I'm lying there watching, watching, watching. But there's a certain point when you fall asleep, you can't be there to watch yourself falling asleep. See? Yeah. And so I would put it this way. If you're not aware of thought arising, thought's not arising. Like down in the unconscious right now, uh, there's all the stirrings of the unconscious mind. There's a part of the mind right now that's writing the script for tonight's dreams. They're working on the script, <laughs> setting up the props. <laughs> all kinds of things are going on. So we're only concerned about what we're consciously aware of. Mm. Next, let's say we then become aware of our wondering mind as we become aware of the tenacity with which it wonders and goes. So I think this is at the heart of this really I'm going to say it as a prayer. Say it as a prayer. Is it, Lord God, you understand infinitely more than I do the way my mind wanders so the way it does. I drift away, I drift away, I come back, I drift away. But I know no matter how much I drift away, you never drift away from me. See, And you're infinitely in love with me in the midst of my drifting waves. And I'm asking for the grace to put my confidence... I should say this too. I supposed to leave my phone on because if my daughters call me and I don't answer, they worry about yes. me that I fell. <laughs> and uh, so that's not them. So anyway, yes, here we were right at the brink. By the way, look at our wayward, we're talking about our wayward ways. See, was the phone call a rude interruption into this lovely moment? See, or was God providentially present in the phone ringing? Yes. You know, the contemplative life in the midst of the world. This is reality. This is, we're always, you know, it's, what's the constancy yes. of the rise and the fall of circumstance? What's the love that's, that's ribbon to the rise and the fall of unforeseeability? And these, these intrusions have their own lessons to them, I think. Yes, it's very similar to what Sue's describing, which I've experienced many times where you meet me meditation too. where you suddenly. It's somewhere it, else, it, and you, you have to come back to your meditating. It, it reveals us to ourselves. Mm. It's almost like saying this to, as a prayer. You know, Lord God, look at me sitting here. How hard it is for me to do such a thing to be consistently present. No wonder I'm having so much trouble with everything else. I can't even be here. Mm. You know, But I am here as I am. 
And so really it reveals us to ourselves because to become aware of how unaware you tend to be is a deeper way to be aware. Mm. It's the constancy of a love that sustains us in the inconsistency of our ways. Mm -hmm. I think this has a lot to do with the mystical touch, really, and the mercy and just what all this is about, really. Otherwise, it's all us again. See, am I holy yet? Am I holy yet? Think I'll make it before the buzzer goes off? You know, and, and so we're really opening up that it's impossible. See, in the impossibility of it all, God achieves in us a union mm-hmm. that's infinite beyond what our finite efforts are even capable of, which is what all these teachings are about, how to taste that mm-hmm. and, and live by it. Yeah. What do you so, think God would be saying? And it, I, you started saying that prayer. I've got tears flowing in my eyes, and yeah. right at the. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you think God would be see? Saying? Well, I think this is. See, I, I, it's it's more from the heart center yeah. than the mind. Yeah. We're touched by it. Yeah. So the tears, it gets to us. It accesses is us in our heart. This heart now, when the mind descends down into the heart, mm. then we would say, "I'd love to stay here." But the damn phone went off. <laughs> See, and it's almost like that. It's like I could be so holy if I didn't have to live my life. You know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the rude interruptions, you're the holy me I want to be. So how do I know that God's with me and is woven into the fabric of the very interruptions itself? Because it, it's life. You know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't look for times to be as quiet as we can. We need those. Yeah. And we should need to protect ourselves from unnecessary. So, for example, if my daughters didn't need to call me so they don't worry about it, I'd turn my phone off. Mm-hmm. But for me, the holiness of the encounter is not to turn my phone yeah. off. And, and so we're always, all things considered, what's the most loving thing I can do right now mm-hmm. for my body, my mind, this person, this community. And if I live by this love, then in my sitting practice, I'm at the axis of love. And throughout the day, where that axis is permeates out to the whole turning wheel of life, I, that's the feeling of it for me. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, a question from Kimberly: How does one reconcile the nuance between non-attachment and the fear I might be withholding love? In other words, in an attempt not to cling or attach. Can we risk withholding love? Is it because love as we know it is almost, it almost always has an agenda with it to satisfy our inner wounds or to get something out of it versus God's agape love, which is love just for love's sake? Yes, you know, this is a subtle thing, really. I think sometimes we can use non-attachment as a kind of a rationale not to engage in the vulnerabilities of love. If we've been hurt by love, abandoned in love, betrayed by love, there can be a kind of non-attachment which feels safer. But really, this non-attachment is for the sake of radicalizing this vulnerability in love. Really, God's love for us in our vulnerabilities like this. And uh, how, uh, what I think is this, we should know that if there's some truth to this, there was certainly that for me with my trauma history when I went to the monastery, this cloistered monastery, 
and with my trauma history. And we didn't talk to each other. The Trappist mind, we used sign language, we didn't talk. For me, it was a perfect hiding place because no one could get to me just chanting the Psalms and sign. But it, God writes straight with crooked lines. So the fact at one level, I ran to a place of refuge. I knew that if I gave myself to God in that woundedness, God found me there and changed my life. So I, I think it's a matter of being sensitive to these. And I really think another fruit is, is this. How could I ask God to help me to become non-attached from my present understandings of what it is to love and be loved? For the sake of radicalizing my capacity to love and be loved. Mm. Am I becoming uh, not less but more sensitive to suffering in the world? Am I becoming more, not less, understanding of the difficulties another person is going through mm. in myself? And I, I think it's that bigger question of discernment, mm -hmm. of a kind of a more kind of uh, habitual state where things are becoming more habitually woven into love sensibilities or sensitivities. And uh, and it's, it's a learning curve, you know, you just stay with it. And uh, because even to see this is the path. Mm -hmm. See, even to see it and be concerned is itself a contemplative concern see, to be with it. You know. Yeah, beautiful. It sounds like, Jim, with, with what you just said, the non-attachment is more focused on not attaching, attaching to things that get in the way of God's presence uh, <coughs> taking us over. Yeah, I'm, I'm using an example. Mm -hmm. this, this applies to therapy too, but I want to apply it to intimate relationship. Let's say the, the 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 lover, the spouse, the intimate other, is sharing something that you can tell matters very much to them. And let's say you're already familiar with it because they talk about it a lot, and you can see where they're at. And you already feel in your mind you have a helpful answer. So you could interrupt them to give you your insight. But what you would do out of love, you, you would suspend saying that. Like non attached you'd be non-attached from your own perception in order to be more present and give them a chance to tell their story. Mm -hmm. Then before you say anything, there'd be a moment where you'd pause. So that what you say is coming not just out of your conviction, but is coming out of a kind of a, a, an empathy with their concern. Of what could I say that would let them know that I see them, mm. that they're not alone in their distress? And that would be non-attachment, see, in the service of meeting at a deeper level. Martin Buber says in I and Thou, what often passes for dialogue is just interrupted monologue. <laughs> We're just interrupting each other. And people are arguing, you don't even let each other finish your sentences. Mm. So this non-attachment is suspending our perceptions and judgment in a kind of a, a sustained attentiveness infused with love, like waiting. But the fruit of it is, it's in the service of, and brings about this deepened capacity to be more present. Mm. That's really helpful, Jim. Thank you for providing that example. Yeah, that's helped me a lot. Thank you. There's a question from Jinti from the UK, and she's doing meditation in a group setting. And so she's asking, uh, 
during the meditation, she feels physical, mental, and emotional needs of others. And should she pray into these or let those go and return to the word? So how does it impact this practice when you're in a group? Well, I think first of all is, is that um, when we're in a, if we have the gift and we're inclined to do it, and there's a group to sit with. A one Zen master once said, you know, it's very hard to get one log burning in a fireplace, but you put three or four logs in. So when we sit in a group, each one benefits from the communal energy of the group, and each, everyone in the group benefits from you. The other side of it is, as we sit there together in silence, you can sense, especially if you're sensitive, like an empath or you're sensitive, you can kind of pick up on your concerns about what's going on in the world. Like what are, each one sitting here has brought burdens here. See? And so that, I would say that sensitivity is a sensitivity to say, by surrendering ourselves over collectively into God, sustaining us in the silence, the depth dimension of the healing is occurring. So I think it's to be aware of it at one level, but then also to not get stay there. Mm -hmm. It led us to return back to the to the depths because it's communal to the depths of God that the depths of God touches all of us collectively, healing the roots of our concerns. Like, this. like the inverse is also true that when we meditate alone. We can never meditate alone because there's people all over the world. Look at all these people listening to the podcast. And we love it. We meditate alone in our homes. But when we're alone, we're not alone because we belong to a community of seekers, which isn't dependent upon physical proximity. It's not dependent upon being together. So we're all interconnected to each other in our solitude. And in, in, in our collectiveness, when we are together, there is this depth dimension of each of us which we, we were with each other in that. Also in my sitting group, what I used to do, we do sitting and walking meditation. And uh, at the end then there would be a dialogue, like these questions here, just like we're doing here. And so this, the sessions themselves are kind of poetic and solitary, but it, it raises up things and then we dialogue with each other. But our dialogues are always in the spirit of the depth dimension in which the questions arise. You know, we're always meeting each other there. So it's that interplay between those two realms, mm. I think. Yeah. So we're moving on to our next category, which is around uh, negative feelings that might arise during the practice, people trying the practice, the method. And uh, so a summary question based on, uh, you know, a, a number of, of questions is how do we deal with difficult thoughts or emotions that come, that come up? such as feelings of shame and self-criticism, feeling broken and damaged, unlovable and not good enough? Um, yes, again, say that um, when, we do, when we engage in practices like this, like wordless practice, breath awareness, there's corollaries in the yoga too, in Zazen and different things. But in these wordless practices, contemplative practices, what we're doing at the psychological level is we're lowering our defenses. Because normally we're defended by the thoughts that we're having, our concerns that we're having. But when we let that fall into the background, what comes welling up are the things that we carry around inside of us. So it, it depends on the intensity of what they are. 
at one level, which is what often happens, you're aware that this, this a memory comes up or a feeling with it around shame or fear, whatever it is. It's just like everything else. You're aware that it's arising. You would notice that you're, there's aversion to it. And you might be tempted to push it away, but you don't push it away. Instead, what you turn, you do is you return to your word, which concretizes yourself in this love, this loving you through and through and through, shame and all, fear and all, anger and all. You do that. But then after the sitting's over, then you go back to it and say, what is it here that's going on with me? Because maybe the traumatizing events have long since passed, but they got inside of me and they live in places in my body and they get activated and come out. So how could I tend to the unfinished business of my woundedness? And how could I deal with it? And that would depend on whatever. Yeah, and therefore, in that level, it's a gift when that happens because mm. it increases self-knowledge. But on the other hand, if there's a history of trauma, and also if there's problems in getting lost in intense emotions, you're having a hard time getting out and uh, getting overwhelmed and so on, always safety first when it gets that way. So you don't practice this way. It's too unguarded. And instead, return back to the Lexio. Return something that has more structure to it. And God's infinitely present in that. Every word of Jesus, God's infinitely present in listening to that, taking it in, reflecting upon it, spiritual teachings and so on. And stay with the more structured form. But again, insofar, based on what the details are, to get help with that. Like to, to deal with that. And, um, uh, and that's why you're taking care of yourself. And taking care of yourself as you're joining God, who gave your life to you as a gift, see, to cherish and watch over and take care of, and so on. Mm. So those are some perspectives I'd have. Mm. Thank you, Jim. Ralph adds to that question by saying that uh, the anxiety is spilling over to when he wakes up in the morning. So he says, now I wake <clears throat> up with anxiety I pause and sit with it and it turns into intense feelings of shame and unworthiness. So I sit with these feelings with compassion and care. It is very intense, but I have experienced how eventually these feelings ease up and get up. And so his question is how to best continue with learning to accept what I am experiencing and have the faith that I am a beloved son of God and am truly loved. Yes, you know, for... Uh a long time, you know, there's this hypnagogic state when you're just as you're drifting off to sleep, I think it's another name for when you're waking up. And um, it's an unguarded moment. Mm. So to wake up and it's there, it shows you there's something inside. See, And thought hasn't showed up yet on the scene to kind of keep it in the background. And uh, so one effort would be, it's just what this person's doing. That is, as soon as it occurs, as soon as you can bring this loving knowledge on board, to contextualize the fear. And then at a secondary level, see what you can do to deal with that. Mm. What is that? You know, I have to say something for myself, too. <clears throat> when I was with Maureen, when I was just going through the five years of this intense therapy for my own trauma, she would fall asleep, like, right away. And uh, I would carry my little transistor radio with me in, into the bed in the dark. i put in earphones. It was a program here in L.A. that... Uh, played uh, spiritual talks all night, Krishnamurti and Alan. 
And uh, I, would, I would listen in the dark on my earphones because being alone in the dark was too much what it felt like being a little boy when I was powerless, when I was being traumatized. Mm. And I needed a human voice not to. And uh, so that's the intimacy of internalized trauma. Mm. But the inverse is the intimacy of internalized spiritual awakening and where those two realms touch each other, you know, like the alchemy of it all. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jim. This is a question from Jillian. My question is, how can the cloud of unknowing guide the healing of memory as we reflect on the experience, painful losses of, in our lives? Um, read the question again, yeah. read it again. How can the cloud of unknowing guide the healing of memory as we reflect on the experience of painful losses in our lives. Well, this is one approach that helps me. It's like two phases to it. <clears throat> Let's say that painful memories are on a horizontal line of our experience of ourselves and our passage through time. And so we have these internalized stories and memories, and then there's the emotions that come up when they reawaken. There's all that. This, this, this passage through time on the horizontal line of memory that from birth to death is intersected in the middle by a vertical depth dimension mm. of the abyss-like love of God, welling up and pouring herself out, so it's God is her, mm -hmm. <laughs> pouring herself out in and as our life on the horizontal line. Mm. And that infinite depth is an abyss of loving depth that's infinitely more real than all the painful memories. And so by surrendering ourselves over to that depth, sustaining us breath by breath by breath, we're transcended from imagining that I'm only the self that things happen to. See, that's where it's scary. Mm -hmm. I'm only the self that things happen to. I'm only the self that can do its best to get past painful memories. It gets absolutized. Mm -hmm. So what this depth of love does, it relativizes into this infinite love. Then the next step is this. Then what we do is we then turn, we then draw from that depth of love to touch the hurting memory with love so that it might dissolve in love. Mm. Because if all, if all we do is surrender ourselves over to this depth of love, it's this kind of detachment again where we're removing ourselves from it. So we have to do love's work. We have to do love's work. And the, the love's work is that we, we turn to touch the hurting places with love. Mm. Now, when we turn to touch the hurting places with love, in that touch, some of the pain that we're touching flows through that touch back into us again. And we can feel ourselves starting to get overwhelmed. So we have to back away. We have to back away, not to keep running in the other direction, but to get regrounded in love, to come back again, to continue touching the hurting place with love. Mm -hmm. Engaging in that work over and over and over again is what transforms us, mm. I think, because it integrates the pain into the love and see this love that permeates it, but doesn't, doesn't take it away mm -hmm. by itself. We have to actively work and cooperate with God to heal and work through these things and to help other people do the same. Mm -hmm. How does the cloud of unknowing 
help with that, Jim? Is there is, is there a specific way, or is it more just the general capacity for love? It, it, it helps. It helps in this sense. Let's say we 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 come and we bring to our prayer ourselves on the horizontal line. We sit in prayer. But what's the cloud of unknowing saying? Yes, you are on this horizontal line, but also notice in a, in a moment in, in the past, you were touched by a blind stirring of love. Maybe it came to you in intimacy with someone. Maybe it came to you in a near-death experience. Maybe it came to you in a solitary hour. Maybe it came to you, but there was a moment of quickening in your heart. Like it shined bright, it broke through. And that moment of your awakening is uh, always there, but hidden away deep inside of you, because God's always there. So when we practice the practice, we put ourselves in a stance that offers the least resistance to be overtaken by this depth-like love that's always there, and that's how it does it. Mm. It, it, it's, 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 it takes us beyond um, who we are as and our passage through time is having the final say on who we are. Yeah. Because notice when we're sitting in deep meditation, it's a timeless moment of time in the midst of time. This is why when we're really doing the sitting, you have to look and see how much time has passed. Because in a way you weren't in time. Mm. See? You were in this depth like eternality, which is the depth of each moment of time. And, and the more it stabilizes us and gives us a grounding in that, that's how it heals it. Mm. I think. Yeah, I think that's answering Liz's question as well. I'll read it, but I think I think what you've just said is guidance for her also. She says, I'm conscious that by temperament, I don't like to dwell on negative feelings, pain or loss, and I'm trying to get better at not just skirting past those things. But ultimately, they are finite feelings. How can you tap into that sense of the infinite where all this pain will melt away without dismissing the pain as unimportant and not getting the no, healing self-knowledge that might come from the tears. Yeah, I, I, would say, I would say this is a helpful word maybe. It, it doesn't melt away. Mm. We tra we trend, it's, like trend, it's like being free from the tyranny of the suffering in the midst of suffering. Mm. It doesn't melt away. But what it does by grounding us in this love that transcends the suffering is still there. It gives us a groundedness in that love to be present to that suffering, mm. to accept it, to understand it, to walk through it, to think it through, and to uh, to integrate that depth dimension with those feelings. Mm. It's like contemplative character transformation. You know, it transforms our character by concretizing this depth-like love and and the unfolding of our experience. Mm. That's re that's really helpful. So. Maybe not so encouraging to Liz, who admits that by temperament she doesn't like to dwell on feelings of pain. <laughs> you, oh, really? You know what? Me too. It's not my favorite thing. But you know what? Uh, here's the thing about trauma. It's, I don't like dwelling on feelings of pain, but there's part of me that does because mm. it dwells. Mm. See? And it dwells because it can't help itself. It's this part of me that's stuck in the moment of the past that won't let me have the present. Yeah. See? And it dwells there, and uh, uh, like ritualized trauma, it stays there. Mm -hmm. And so, how do we liberate that? Like disengage from it. We disengage from it only by engaging with it, working with it, working through it, seeing and accepting it, 
cathartic feeling, feeling the emotion yeah. and walking through it to be set free by walking through it. The Buddhists have a saying, I walked through the middle of the flames and found it was raining in there. Mm. And so in the midst of our pain, there's this kind of uh, raining down of this grace that uh, puts the pain into a context. Thank you, Jim. This is a question, uh, I put it in the, in this category of people kind of struggling for the unitive, wanting the unitive. And so this is a question from Rita. What has struck me in the past few days is that I am still struggling with a lack of the felt sense of God in my life, and that is what I am seeking. Whereas I think that perhaps the point is to move beyond seeking that reassurance to a place of just giving myself to the unknowable, taking the risk of opening myself to challenge. I realize that I spend so much of my time holding onto a very closed off part of myself, which is afraid to be open, to be vulnerable, to take risks. I find it so hard to let go of the tangible, the incarnate, indeed because the alternative is unknown and at times seems less appealing than the present here and now. Is there any other advice you can give as to how to make this shift? Yes, yeah, you know, what was coming to me now is when we were doing St. John of the Cross about longing. And uh, he's echoing the Song of Songs, the scripture. And says, uh, where, where have you gone, beloved, and left me moaning? I went out looking for you and you were gone. And so the whole dark night of the soul is the loss of the unitive experience, which you know it is lost because you fleetingly tasted it. Mm. And having tasted it, you know your life is forever incomplete without it. See? And so the longing is the path. See? It, it perpetuates it. Next, what helps is the longing, is to know that this longing is an echo of God's infinite longing for us. God longs for us. And we might say God longs for us to long for him. God longs, it's like longing meets the longing and is transcended in the longing. The next thing is, is that in the midst of this longing for this union, to know that somehow the longing for the union is itself the union, experience as the longing. And this is where you get to the second part about accepting the longing. There is this, there is this imperative to consummate this longing that I don't understand. And by my finite efforts, I'm powerless to consummate it. And therefore, I sit in my powerlessness in my finite abilities to actualize this infinite consummation that I long for. And by sitting quietly and patiently with all my heart, the, the, the consummation we long for arises. Mm. And I think it arises unexpectedly, like we didn't see the nearness of it. That's why I think we might start crying or we might start, it silences us. It, we're blindsided by its nearness. Mm. And here what we also realize that here it was all there all along. The unit of mystery is alone was ultimately real. It was just hidden and buried under internalized this and that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, that's the that's experiential salvation. I mean, that's really the, the thing. And it's so different how each one of us experiences that. Sometimes it's very, very subtle. It, it, it comes and then it, then it goes away again. 
it comes back. And so we're really just giving ourselves over to the path mm. and knowing that we are being transformed on God's terms and not on our terms. Mm. And uh, we just walk the walk. Yeah. You know? That's helpful. That's very encouraging. Thank you, Jim. A question from Jenny. I have just listened to the second dialogue in which James said that everything is eternal. This was taken to be a comforting thought, and in many ways it is, but not in all ways. Does that mean that the Holocaust is eternal, that Ukraine is eternally bombarded by Russia, that things we might regret saying or doing are eternal? Yes. Let's say, first of all, the intuition is is if, um, if God knows that we're here having this conversation and um, God never forgets, which means, and not only that, God knowing that we're here is the reality of us being here. Okay. So when we die and go into God, we'll go into having this conversation forever. Everything real is forever. But then it raises this question, well, what about then the moments of trauma? Because if they're forever experienced as they were when the trauma was occurring, we'd be in hell. Yeah. See, hell would be, we'd be eternally trapped. Mm -hmm. uh, just because something's too sad to be true doesn't mean it's not true. See, just because uh, things seem to be and are hopeless doesn't mean they're not hopeless. Yeah. See? Yeah. And that's trauma. But here's, I think, the what it is really in the Christian terms, that when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from his, with his wounds. So it's the eternality of suffering conquered by the infinite love of God, which is glory. It, it, and so the, it's the glory that's there. So the wounds are there, but they're transfigured. Mm. They're transfigured in this love. And, and I think that's, that's the mystery yeah. of it. What we're trying to realize now, I think, in sitting prayer, is that even now is transfigured in love. See? And so freedom from the tyranny of suffering in the midst of suffering. See, what is it? Like Merton, it is not subject to the brutalities of our own will. There's something that's, Jesus, the, Jesus spoke of finding the pearl of great price hidden in a field. See? And that pearl of great price is being, an inf being invincibly loved by this infinite love that loves us so in every moment of our life, including the moment of our death. So we're trying to find our way to that, to be mystically present to the unfolding of circumstances. And, uh, you know, mm. you know, it's a mystery. You know. Yeah. Take a breath after that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. That, it, it is the mystery of the cross. I've heard you say that a number of times. That that it really is. brings it to life, that, the, that mystery. Yeah. And that, that's why I say, too, I think in the Christian language, that we tend to think of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus as three phases. And that's how they're presented in the story, because that's how we experience it. But what if the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus are collapsed as the true nature of every moment of our life? Mm. Because notice, every moment of our life is a moment that's past. In other words, in this present moment, I'm aware that I just passed beyond the moment that just was. Mm -hmm. But unless I passed beyond the moment of just was, I couldn't have entered into this moment. And this moment is opening out upon the moment that's coming right towards me. 
And so unless I let go of, or reality is me letting go of into the next moment. And so every moment is life and death. Mm. And that's inhaling and inhaling and breath awareness mm. too. Is That's the depth, the eternality of the fleetiness <clears throat> of the true nature of the present moment, mm. I think, yeah. And notice how a lot of trauma is being stuck in the past. Yeah. And a lot of it is anticipatory anxiety about the future. Mm -hmm. So we're so concerned about the future, so burdened by the past, we don't get to be present. Yeah. See? But the present is a fleeting present. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the eternality of what's perpetually fleeting but never passes away. And we're trying to find our way to the sense of that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This uh, is a good timing to ask Pam's question, which is... Uh, to you, Jim, what is your experience of feeling the presence, love of God during contemplation as a result of your many years of this practice? Yeah. I guess I'd put it this way. For me, now these last number of years has been this way for me because it's gone through phases for me since I was in the monastery, really. Here's what it is for me, I think. Um, when I was in the monastery, I was in silence for six years, chanting the Psalms and this. And what it felt like to me in this pervasive silence was somehow dropping down into the presence of God. The presence of God, that's the infinity of the sun moving across the sky, of me inhaling and exhaling, of me looking this way and that. The God's the infinity of the concrete immediacy of the unfolding of things. And I, in that silence, I was able to be habitually established in, in like the God nature, the nature of every moment. So what I feel when I sit, I get up in the morning and write six hours a day about things like this, the cloud of annoying with my book. And what I, what I experience it is I'll be trying to put words to this and putting words to it in a sustained solitary silence in which I drop down into this presence of God and I become kind of unexplainably, I can't explain it. It's like, I can't explain it. It's like God, uh, it's like God's uh, uh, intimately giving herself away in the intimate immediacy of the concreteness of me sitting there, mm. just as I am. And I can get up and walk around, look out the door, and, uh, and knowing that underneath it all, it's, it's like that for me. Mm. That's what it is. And then I also know that when I'm not that way, sometimes I'm not because <laughs> I'm upset or sad or something, I then know that God's infinitely present as me not being there. Mm. It has its own role to play. You know, sometimes Maureen and I, we, she had a little thing on the kitchen, used to say it was a stone and it had carved in it, our love is rock solid. And sometimes we get in arguments. And we'd have a talk and say, you know, it's so important that we're not exempt from the human experience. See? It isn't a holiness beyond the darkness of this world. It's the depth and the holiness of the darkness of this world. Mm. So our human vulnerability, the divinity of our vulnerability, is the context in which this presence of God keeps deepening. Mm. So those are some of the ways I would try to put words to it, mm. I guess. Wow, that's really helpful to hear that. Thank you for sharing. Um, well, we're going to turn to a voicemail, but this is a good time, I think, just to thank Corey, our producer, who 
was the one to gather all these questions and emails and voicemails and put them together for us and with such care. And I know he responds to people as well. So, Corey, thanks for all that amazing work and we're ready to hear the voicemail. Good. Yes, thanks, Corey. Thank you, Jim and Kirsten. Miguel here in Olympia, Washington. First time caller, long time listener. I have a comment and a question. I'm 70 years old and have been practicing silent prayer since I was 15 years old. But every time I sit, although I've logged thousands of hours, I feel like it is the first time. I really enjoyed the way you, Jim, have unpacked the cloud. And I thought the image of the eagle silently soaring and the occasional flap of the wing is a great metaphor for the use of the prayer word. I also love the simple distinction you made between thought and thinking. As Thomas Keating said, God's first language is silence and everything else is a poor translation. My question is, it seems that most of the major world religions have some practice of silence. Jim, how do you think the cloud's Christian intention of practice differs from the intention of the Buddhist Vipassana practice. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to season six. Yes. Now, let me say first, uh, I want to speak of silence in the, in the Christian language first. Some thoughts. You know, I think uh, there's different kinds of silence. One is a I once went on a Zen retreat with this uh, Jesuit priest from the Netherlands. Um, I think of his name right now. And uh, he said, you know, he said, there's imposed silence in which you don't speak because you're not allowed to. And I thought, too, that has two versions of it. There's imposed speech where you're threatened if you say anything, you'll regret it. But there's also the imposed speech out of courtesy like in a church or a religious service or at a memorial service, whatever. So it's imposed as a courtesy that you freely accept. There's another kind of silence then, which is the deepening of that chosen silence. And that deepening of the chosen silence, it opens out on eternal silence. So meditative mind, the meditative practices is a chosen silence that opens us up to this eternal silence. And we've tasted the eternal silence in moments that were silenced. Like Merton, we turn to see a turn of hawk, we turn to see a flock of birds descending. And as if out of the corner of our eye, we sense something in their descent, this primordial, vast and true. And we're silenced by it, meaning there are no words that can account for it, like that. And so what we do then is we take those moments where we're silenced with the silence of God, in which the silence of God is speaking the universe into existence, the self-donating, the birds, the air, the, everything. So the practice then is a practice of freely choosing that stance where the intention is leaning into that silence, which is really to, to listen the first words of the role of St. Benedict is, listen, my child, to the words of the Master. And if today you hear his voice, harden not your heart. See? So our silence is that we might listen. Thomas Merton once said in a talk to the monks at the monastery, he said, uh, sometimes we tend to think we're real because we make noise. 
But we should never forget that all of our noise came out of eternal silence and is very, very quickly going to return to it. He said everything that stands up and shouts about itself is an illusion. But then there are words that come out of silence. Not They don't interrupt it. They come out of it and deepen it, which are the words of prayer, the words of love, the words of crying out in suffering, the words of seek to console, the words of poets, philosophers. And so all, all, all these contemplative traditions, see, Merton saw this. When Thich Nhat Hanh came to visit Merton, when he, he was still in Vietnam, they recognized each other. Because what Thich Nhat Hanh was seeking in the Dharma of the Buddha, and Merton was seeking in mystical Catholicism, they, they met at a point of convergence of this divinized consciousness. And when Bede Griffith came from India, from the ashram, and uh, uh, the Kabbalah, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel came to visit Merton. There's this convergence where people given over to the contemplative dimensions of the divine and their tradition that transcends their tradition, they recognize each other. And so I found in my life, he introduced, Merton introduced me to yoga and he introduced me to, to Buddhism. And I've also been deeply affected by the Sufi way. I found it very enriching to know these different dialects for transformation. And um, so I would say that's the affinity. So if you're so inclined, some people aren't, but if you're so inclined and you taste the richness of these paths, the kind of, that can be woven into your path, you know, as part of your inner landscape. Mm -hmm. Brian had a question about that, about um, I came to Centering Prayer via mindfulness of of breathing practice, which is more about focusing your attention on the breath, whereas centering prayer is about releasing attention from your thoughts and being receptive to divine presence. I'm wondering if you have any guidance on wise ways to combine the lessons of the mystics and centering prayer with mindfulness, present moment awareness. Yes. My, this is my understanding, but I say this because I'm, it's not my tradition. I was more influenced by Zen Master Dogen and the Soto tradition, which is different than the Vipassana tradition, so I can't speak of it experientially. But this is my understanding of it, that, yes, Vipassana practice is mindfulness of thought arising. But just like the seven steps see right mindfulness, the eighth path of the, eight, of the eightfold path of the Buddha is right concentration. So we begin by focusing on thought, on thought. But what happens is it deepens that you as the observer of the thought and the thought that you're observing mutually disappear as the Dharma field itself. As long as you're still there to observe it, you're still on the way. But when you pass into thought, into an awareness that transcends thought, it's revealed in thought. That's my understanding of the enlightenment experience. See, uh, otherwise, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a Buddhist story in uh, The Gateless Barrier. It's a lovely Buddhist text. And this person has this awakening, this mystical awakening. And uh, he's sitting there uh, in the community telling the Zen master about this awakening. And there's a boy standing in the doorway, one of the, that helps the community. And the master says, what is it, you know, that you've been awakened to, like bear witness to it? And he points to the little boy. He says, ask him, he'll tell you all about it. Mm. See? See? So it's like that. It's that kind of beyond, you know what yeah. I mean? It's that 
that's a thought, those are words, but they're words that bear witness to a unity beyond what words can say, you know, which is spiritual language, mm -hmm. really, I think, you know. Teresita asks, how can we bring this into the world? How, how do we bring this union into the social construct of our world? How do, how do we model this to help others so they find their contemplative self what would it be like to be a contemplative politician, scientist, author? Yeah, this is my sense of it. Let's say I'm sitting in my practice. And in the practice, I realize that what I'm sitting in is the desire to deepen my awareness of the divinity of the intimate immediacy of all things. Uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You know, the, the divinity that permeates the human experience throughout the whole world. So let's say later in the day I'm sitting at a meeting. And people are sitting around the table and I'm listening or working on a, trying to resolve something for the service that this group provides for the world or the product, whatever it is, the problem. And you sit there and you say, I guess I could blurt out something. I could share my opinion. But instead I could pause for a minute I can meditate and say, what could I say right now that would have the best possible chance of being helpful? See, when I really think about it, see, and how could I say it, and what would be the way in which I would say it, it would have the highest chance of being received and to see where it goes. And I think that's, being, that's the, the contemplative dimensions of the business place. Mm -hmm. That's the contemplative. So a politician would be, what is politics? It's the science of the possible. See, it's the science of policies that ideally promote the good of the community. So how my commitment to the political order, could I be committed to policies that do that? Mm -hmm. And an open and exchange, the, the key to democracy is this dialogue. You know, and how can we actively meet in the middle for the sake of the common good mm -hmm. and not give in to ideological confrontation? Because that's the problem. It turns, it turns into that. So how could I not be part of the problem see, by not getting in, into that polarity, but trying to stay the middle course that includes both as I hold my own perspective, but deeply respectful of the other, what truth it contains and how can we move forward together? And not be disheartened by uh, the tenacity of collective brokenness in the political order. Mm. You know, to just not be disheartened by it. But, and if you and if you you do get disheartened by it, quit. Mm -hmm. You're not meant to be there. You know? Yeah, we, we weren't we weren't put on this earth to let other people tear down our capacity to enjoy the groundedness of our own life. Mm. You know, and we to love our neighbor as ourselves, not instead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Saskia asks about what does it mean to love God for God's sake alone? And the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, he says, well, you know, what is this cloud? He, he poses a question. The reader is asking a question. And he says, I don't know. He says, your very question draws me into the cloud I'm inviting you to enter. <laughs> See? So what, what, how, I might put it this way. I, I, I would say it's, it's a way of, um, it's a way of being in the presence of a love 
that is, is loving me into the present moment. My, 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 to be at the deathbed of a dying loved one, it's very clear. Our next breath belongs more to God than to us. And uh, I'm sitting in the presence of this love that's giving itself out as every beat of my heart. It's, it's pouring itself out as the unexplainable miracle, the immediacy of myself. And I can be so touched by the nearness of this generosity I, and this is where I'm silenced. I, 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 I lean into letting it have its way with me. I lean into letting it have its way with me, that it might uh, transform me into itself. Mm. And that's, that's how I would try to, it's, it's precisely what you can't say. That's why I think contemplative spiritual direction is two people sitting in a room together, dialoguing about what neither one can say. Mm -hmm. But they recognize in the intimations of the longing see, what it is that's being discussed. And I think when we listen to these mystics, it feels that way. You know what I mean? You just get this feeling that, that these people, that they're, they're, they're people for whom everything they say counts. Because it's coming from the same place and with the same intention to help us find our way to this so that we might in turn pass it on to others. Mm -hmm. Last question, Jim, uh, and you, you used this phrase earlier, so I do, I do want to just get to this question before we finish. Uh, Hel Helene, I think it is, says, uh, in a recent episode you mentioned the contemplative transformation of personality. I wonder if you could discuss this further. Um. Yeah, this related to this question, someone to relate about the Enneagram and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. See, let, let's say, um, let's say my, my personality is um, the kind of intricate patterns of the givens of my felt sense of who I am. I, it's my temperament, my style, my sensitivities, my lack of sensitivities, the things that attract and draw me and fascinate me the things that I'm working on, not just what I'm working on, but the way in which I work on the things that I'm working on, my personality. And, um, and so in a way, when I sit in prayer, it's in my personality, I come upon the identity deeper than my personality. Then my personality, Merton calls it our exterior self. But um, uh, in the depths of my personality, as I drop down in silence, in the depths of my personality, I drop down into an identity that is God being identified with me in the mystery of who I am. But that deepening mystery of God identified with me then kind of wells up and illumines my personality. And it brings about my own unique temperament, my own unique way of um, being faithful to or kind of embodying this kind of transfigured way of life. But embodying it is me. Mm. Another way I put it too sometimes is that of all the millions and millions of people uh, on this earth, not a single one of those people is you. Not a single one of them. And of all the people that have ever lived, not a single one of those people was you. And all the people yet to be born, not a single one of them is going to be you. That you're the only you there is. So if you don't be you, nobody will. 
And uh, so we transcend ourselves to uh, drop into this uniqueness of ourself that is our unique portal or opening that opens out upon the uniqueness of everybody. Mm. That's why the more I understand myself in these interior realms, the more I understand everybody. Because every one of us is a unique edition of the same story. Mm. See, we're this invincible preciousness that we're trying to find our way back to, to be faithful to it. And uh, so in, in this interconnectedness with myself, I enter an interconnectedness of, of empathic union with the underlying patterns of everybody. Like that, I think. Yeah, wow. That's beautiful and, and timely to hear that uh, as we've sat with uh, questions lis listeners are sitting with, because we're all yeah. we're all <coughs> woven into those questions. We all have yeah. those same. Yes. Yeah. Another thought too I have is Hikeatas. You know, Duns Scotus had this idea. Dry uh, Manley Hopkins was struck by this about thisness, mm -hmm. that each leaf is alone, the leaf that it alone is. And so the divinity is the uniqueness of each twig and leaf and pebble and stone and us. And notice, too, if you love someone very, very much, as someone who's passed over, a spouse or a grandmother or a grandfather, when you look back, what's endearing about it? It's the way they laughed, mm. you know, or it's a, it's a certain way they tended to say things, you know, a certain pattern that's this in, in, imitable. It can't be imitated. Mm -hmm. Know, which is somehow though, and then we're trying to find that in ourselves. Yeah. See, to appreciate and feel that and share that and be that. Yeah. You know. Oh, that's so helpful. And really, then these listener questions are like unique portals into this path, and uh, as we're yeah. all trying to find out a way to. And, no, to and, and notice also in the questions, they're revealing themselves yes. to us see, because of the sincerity. And when they do, they enrich all of us, for in the response, everyone benefits from yeah. it. So we're kind of, this is contemplative community being actualized here right now, yeah. Yeah, what a gift. Yeah. And Jim, thank you so much for this wonderful season on the cloud. Yes. It's been just a joy to be in dialogue with you about it and um, to sit with these questions today has been has been a real gift. Yeah, so. and then after a break, when we do Julian, to Julianne of Norwich, she's a lovely mystic, it'll be delightful to do her, they move on to Eckhart and so on and so on. We're on a journey here together, yeah. so it's good. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's a real gift. Thank you for everything, Jim. We, we appreciate your unique portal. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.